Well, hi, everybody. Good to be talking to you. If you're new here, my name is Joel. And uh, in recent weeks, we've been looking at the story of Noah, who's uh, in the opening pages of the Bible. You may remember the story of Noah and the flood. Uh, I think that when you're going through a time of global crisis, it's perhaps a good idea to be reminded of a story of global crisis because we need the God of global crisis who's been here before and knows the territory. And uh, he is able to give us a sense of perspective at times like this. So we're going to have Genesis chapter 6 and today verses 9 to 22. Genesis chapter 6 verses 9 to 22. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, and cover it inside and out with pitch, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive." Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this and he did all that God commanded him. In that part of the story was the reminder of human wickedness. Once again, we've spent the last couple of times having our faces rubbed in the, the corrupt and rebellious state of humanity in general. That's the normal human story as far as the Bible is concerned. But it's also in this chapter interesting to notice an exception, or at least someone who has become an exception. You may remember last time we, we pointed out that Noah, in spite of the fact that he's just the same as everybody else, he's a fallen creature, a corrupt creature with wickedness in his heart, just like any of us. And yet he finds favor in the eyes of God. God reaches out to Noah and befriends him. God shows him grace. And that's perhaps the great theme of the Bible, you could say. God's grace to undeserving humanity. And in this case, it's reached an individual who has become a righteous man, as it's said there. Uh, he's become blameless. He's become somebody who walks with God. And you see the pattern of his life in the fact that when God gives him a, a set of instructions for the construction of a, a boat, 
which frankly is like a huge wooden cathedral. And we're talking about the work of not, not an afternoon. This isn't like an, an Ikea flat pack. This is years, decades, maybe centuries. Uh, confusing the, the way that Genesis describes the age of individuals at this early stage of human history. Uh, yep, hard to get our heads around. But the point is it would have taken Noah a long time to construct this vessel. And yet, as it says at the close of the chapter, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And as such, he is commended. He's presented to us as a, an unusual individual. He's, he's presented to us as, as, as distinct because he's obedient. He's the obedient man. And when we start seeing stories like this, I mean, just a rebellious world, disobedient humanity in general, people who are wicked because they won't do what God says, and then someone who's special because he's obedient. He does what he's told. Well, if you're anything like me, if you're anything like a sort of 21st century Brightonian, frankly, if you're anything like any Western modern, you know, anybody, anyone who lives in, in, in recent generations, you're going to find that uncomfortable because the whole idea we have of religion that it, is, is it, is it rejoices in the suppression of individual will. That people who want to have freedom and autonomy don't want to go near the God of the Bible because all he wants to do is suck the freedom out of you. It's, uh, it's the objection that most contemporary people have towards Christianity. The, the, the famous Christopher Hitchens, before he died, talked of Christianity as a cosmic North Korea where God is watching you, and mostly with an eye to controlling you. That's the point of his constant surveillance so while you're watching me on a screen somewhere there's a there's a, a cosmic dictator watching you on an even bigger screen because he wants to have you he wants to control you he wants to correct you and that's that's obviously in conflict with our cherished sense of individual autonomy our freedom our freedom of expression our free will which we've delighted in for generations uh, certainly in this part of the world if not globally and, and so Christianity is, yet for another reason, despised and, and uh, uh, treated with, with, with suspicion and reluctance. But I want to look again at the kind of obedience that we see here and, and also ask the question, what is it about our cherished idea of individual freedom and autonomy that makes it so apparently sacred? See, what we've done is we've more or less enshrined freedom. We've sort of fetishized freedom as the thing. We Brightonians, we, we, we exalt freedom. We are the city of freedom. We love our liberty. And nothing can challenge it, surely. We really want to have freedom of self-expression and freedom of lifestyle. As if you touch that, you're, you're blaspheming because it's the God before which we bow down. But it's interesting to notice that there are things that challenge our freedom and we seem to willingly accept. When coronavirus comes along and starts to mean that we, we need to curtail some of our freedoms, freedom of movement, uh, freedom of assembly, we, we don't really have these at the moment because, well, it, it's, it's virus time and so we need to respond to certain guidelines. We need to accept some lockdown. 
And we, we're cool with that, it would seem, generally speaking. We're struggling with it, I'm sure, but we understand it. We know that freedom actually on its own isn't the final God. It can't be because there are certain things that get challenged or challenge it. There are other priorities. So freedom on its own can't be the only thing uh, that we worship. There must be some other values. There must be some other priorities. And it's worth thinking about even the kind of freedom that really frees us. Because the way we define freedom is, is usually just in terms of individual autonomy. The individual being free from the control of others, especially free from the control of religion, any kind of heavenly, celestial, meanie, spoil sport. I want freedom from that thing. But to define freedom that way is to define it entirely negatively, right? Just it's, it's freedom from stuff. It's not freedom for stuff. It doesn't tell you what life is for. It doesn't tell you what freedom is for. It tells you what it's against. It tells you what you're meant to be released from. The truth is that the people who are truly free, who are most free, often are people who, at least for part of their life, have had to submit to what might look like a yoke of slavery. I often use this as an example, but imagine a, a very exceptional concert pianist, someone who's br so brilliant on the piano that they constantly look free. The way they play the piano, there's a freedom of expression about the way they play the piano. They are free when they play. But you know as well as I do that that person got there by years of arduous practice. At least at times that practice would have felt like captivity. It would have felt to some extent like a, a certain bondage. Not necessarily a harsh, cruel bondage, but nevertheless a, a, a limiting stricture on that person's time and opportunities. If I'm going to be that great at the piano, if I'm going to be that free, I cannot be free with some other things. I've got to curtail my freedom in order to have expressions of freedom in this way. And it's like that, I think, with freedom in general. If we really want to enjoy freedom, we may find that we need to allow for some other limitations of freedom. We may find the most free way to live is under the authority of someone we can trust. It's like that in relationships. If you really want to be free in relationships and enjoy love, enjoy family, enjoy marriage, there will be restrictions. It will it will bring limitations of certain kinds, but we embrace them because we understand that freedom is more than just my autonomy, me being separated and cut off and just living in my cubicle forever and ever. That's not true freedom, or if it is, it's pretty shallow. I think when we see stories like this story of this man who thrived because he obeyed, thrived because he followed through on commands. We need to be real careful before we take into it our 21st century presumptions of what's valuable and what isn't and start to think again, wait a minute, is there something here about submission to a heavenly authority that actually does bring freedom in a different and fuller sense and brings a flourishing to the world, brings joy. Because what I'm doing when I obey this God is I'm not abiding by just my personal sense of autonomy. I'm abiding by the designer's instructions. I'm abiding by the one who knows how to make life flourish, how I can thrive, 
how I can be most at peace and most joyful. So we may need to rethink and reconsider the way we understand freedom. We also need to think for a moment as well. Just There are a couple of assumptions that we make when we, when we despise obedience because we celebrate our free will as the final authority. Just for a moment, consider the possibility that our free will may not be as free as we think it is. See, if we say we reject the God of the Bible because we want to have freedom, we want to have free will, and the God of the Bible wants to control us. The truth is you've kind of cut off the branch you're sitting on. Because if there's no God, then whatever's going on inside our minds is not free will in any meaningful sense. Our ability to make decisions is just a big delusion. We're not making decisions. We're just obeying the, the chance activity of chemicals in our grey matter. All of this is just an accident, right? And our decisions, we don't actually make them. We, we, they're just stuff that happens with chemicals and we respond to the chemicals. We are submitting to chemical reactions inside our brain. The synapses of our mind are controlling us. It's nothing to do with free will, whatever that idea is. If there's no God, then really there's no soul. There's no, there's no real individual of any meaningful sense. Our consciousness is just a big contract. It's a delusion. Think about that for a moment. And then secondly, consider the fact that you can't really escape the, the constant reality that you will obey something. You will. There will be something in your life that will have prime place. There will be. There will be some kind of God. Even if we reject the God of this book, which most people certainly do in Brighton, There'll be some other God that takes the throne. There'll be some other principle of life, something we live for, something we obey, something we worship, you could say. If you don't, take it from me. Take it from uh, David Foster Wallace. This is a, a novelist who wrote this or said this, actually, publicly, shortly before he died a few years ago. I've used this quotation before because it makes the point so well. Everybody worships, he says. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. So David Foster Wallace is saying, it's not really a choice of whether you obey. It's actually really only a choice of who you obey, what you obey, what will be the thing that takes the throne in your life. And Noah, in this story, unlike his whole generation, unlike the whole of humanity, has found the person 
or rather the person has found him, who deserves his obedience, who can be trusted with his devotion, who he can bring his life to, confident, peaceful, content, trusting that he's not bowing down before a false god who will eat him alive. But he's devoting himself to the good God who wants to restore and renew and regenerate things rightly. We get to see into the mind of Noah a little bit in these verses. There's actually a place I want to go to in the New Testament, which helps us even closer, I think, see what's going on in Noah's heart. Because it's that place in the book of Hebrews that describes Noah's faith. And I'm just going to take this verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, to, to unpack some of the features of Noah's, Noah's heart during this part of his story. It says this, Hebrews 11, verse 7, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let me just quickly draw out three things here that we can see. And the story we heard earlier and this verse in Hebrews about Noah's decisions, about Noah's heart, about what makes Noah tick, what's going on in his, the motivation center of his life. First of all, it is faith. It's faith in what is not seen. Faith in what is not yet seen, in fact. That's the way it's described. He, 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 by faith, he, he's being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Noah has huge confidence. In fact, his confidence could be described as hope because the same chapter of Hebrews talks about faith, defining it like this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So Noah hasn't seen the flood. He hasn't actually seen the world that God is going to bring him into, a new creation, if you like, the rainbow and the, the, the mountain that the ark will rest upon, and the new era of world history that's ushered in. He hasn't seen it yet. But because he's seen something of God, he's seen something of the character of the person who's persuading him, he's seen enough. He hasn't seen everything, and yet even in the midst of not seeing everything, he's got confidence and he's got hope. He's motivated by genuine hope. There's things he hopes for that drive him along. And that is right at the heart of genuine faith. See, we, we sometimes imagine that faith is the denial of reality because faith is our insistence on believing things that we can't prove, which, which is a very dodgy definition. Faith is, is the idea of believing stuff that we know isn't true, but we have faith anyway. It's not true, but let's just have faith. That's a, that's a useless definition. It's extremely unhelpful. No, faith is confidence in things that we do know, but are at the moment unseen. At the moment, they're, they're tested. They're things that, though we are persuaded of them, we are, we're having to keep persuading ourselves, if you like. We're having to rely on the things that, yeah, we, we know them, but there's a lot that goes against it at the moment. We're going through a time of conflict. It's tempting to not believe it. It's tempting to disbelieve it. 
because of other realities, other difficulties that seem to conflict with it. Noah hasn't seen a flood by this stage of his life, never seen anything like it. He's never seen anything like the things that God is warning him about. But he takes it seriously. Why? Because of his confidence in the God who's speaking. He genuinely trusts the character of the one who is speaking to him. Hope is driven by that. Confidence in, in him. I, I know he's trustworthy. It's possible to obey, but without hope. I would actually say that Noah's genius is not his obedience, because it is one of the factors, one of the characteristics of obedience in the Bible, that it can be done in faith, but also not in faith. There are some in this book who seem to obey God, but they obey God without faith. They don't have any hope in God. Their obedience becomes more and more sour, more and more bitter, because it's not driven by hope. It's not driven by the, the, content, the, the contentment that Noah has in the God of the promise. It doesn't, it doesn't feel hopeful. It feels rather almost put upon and dutiful. And there's not a joy in the duty. There's just a sense of, of external pressure. I've got to do this because I've got to do it. I'm not hopeful. Whereas Noah, Noah is flooded with hope. And this is the way that we're, we're told to live. The reason this chapter is in Hebrews is because it's what we're called to, to exercise. We are invited to live the same way. Noah is not put before us and said, well, isn't it amazing? Some people live by faith. No, the writer is saying, this is how we're called to live. This is going to be our story. This is what's open. You can live by faith. You can live by hope. You can do things, achieve things, obey in this life radically. You can do things that will be extraordinary, things that you would never have expected yourself to do because of hope. Because I'm confident in a God who's promised things. I trust him. I can't see it right now, but I trust him. I trust him for a new world. I trust him for a new creation. I trust him for rewards. I trust that my obedience in this life, though it looks peculiar, and how peculiar did Noah look constructing this enormous boat when no one had ever seen a flood before? No one had really seen water of, of any scale. It looked ridiculous. And Noah was deeply persuaded that's what faith is like. It's, it acts out of hope. Anything less than that wouldn't have been enough for Noah, and it won't be enough for you. You cannot, the Bible says, you cannot please God without faith. You can't, you can't connect with him without the kind of faith that trusts, that hopes, that expects, that knows he's good. He is so good. I expect good things from him because I found favor in his eyes. He's my friend. He is good to me. I trust him. That's really what faith is. It's confidence. It's trust in him. And that will affect the way we decide and the way we make space in our lives, the way we deal with things, the way we use our time, the way we use our money, the way we, the way we, use our, the way we conduct our relationships. It's also characterized his life by, not just by faith, but by fear. Did you notice that in Hebrews 11, verse 7? By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. And it then says, for the saving of his household, and by this he condemned the world. He condemned the world. Now, that doesn't mean that Noah went around self-righteously slagging people off. 
The Bible tells us not to do that. Jesus is very clear. Self-righteousness stinks. Condemning people in that sense is not on. Jesus hates that. But Noah condemns the world in a different sense. Noah, by standing out from the crowd in his obedience to God, by saying, I am not following the trend. I, I will not obey the crowd. I will obey you. Even if it means I look ridiculous, I will obey you. Even if it means others hate me, in the end, I fear God, not people. And the person that obeys will at times need to be prepared for that level of exposure, that level of almost stigma. You, you will look peculiar, at least sometimes. You will occasionally come across as, as bizarre in the focus of your attention. What you're afraid of is different than what others are afraid of because you just don't belong anymore. My dad used to illustrate this by saying, have you seen someone not from, from the UK crossing the road? They, they will look the wrong way because their expectations are wrong. They come from a different culture, a different country, and their, their road, their people drive on a different side of the road. When you, don't, when you don't belong in a certain place, you see dangers coming from a different place. You fear different things. You look the wrong way, if you like. You and I, if we belong to Jesus, we don't, we don't fear the same things that this world fears. We, we should fear, but we fear different things. We fear God. We fear God. We're concerned about him. We're not concerned about other people's opinions. Who cares? We're ultimately concerned about God's opinion. I remember Rick Warren being interviewed by Piers Morgan a few years ago on television in the States. And Piers Morgan was really going for him uh, because Rick Warren's opinions on uh, some Christian things weren't, weren't in step with mainstream public opinion. And he would say, how can you believe this? How can you accept what the Bible says about this and that? And Rick Warren said to him, just straight as anything, he just said, in the end, Piers, and he said it as a friend, he loved him. He's a good friend of Piers Morgan. He said it very kindly. He said, in the end, Piers, I'm more scared of what God thinks than I'm of what you think. That's Noah. That's Noah. He fears God. He fears God, and it means that he doesn't drift. For my friend, you cannot really obey God while drifting. If you drift with the stream, you're not obeying God. It's only dead fish that drift with the current. You don't want to drift with the current. You want to be prepared to go against the current sometimes and say, no, I, I fear God. And it's not so that I can judge the world self-righteously. Actually, it doesn't say that Noah condemned the world by his words. He condemned the world just by living differently. People will see the way you live and it will make them think. It will cause them to draw in their breath. They might not say anything. They might be secret about it. They might, they might even say bad things towards you. But secretly, you never know what's going on in their heart. You never know what you're causing them to think for themselves. As, as you follow the example of this man who feared God. And this will lead you to do things that are so different. I've done things in my life that I think I would never have done if I didn't fear God. Hired a stadium once to preach the gospel to thousands of people, had to raise money, had to, had to deal with all kinds of problems, get people on side, get the weather on side, massive challenges. I remember during the time when I was trying to plan it, trying to, trying to win the arguments to make it happen, we hired a football stadium. It was crazy. 
And thousands of people heard the gospel. Hundreds of people became Christians. Hundreds of people were healed dramatically. It was a blast. But there were times when I thought, what am I doing? And I remember going to this verse in the Bible and God speaking to me through it. That Noah, in holy fear, built an ark. Sometimes you do the thing that looks a little bit crazy because you're more afraid of disobeying God than you are of just being out of step with the people around you. Faith and obedience will make you afraid of different things in the world. Let me ask you, what are you afraid of right now? With coronavirus, we're afraid of losing money, right? Let me talk to you straight off about money. How are you dealing with that fear? Why are you afraid about money? Have you forgotten what Jesus said? Have you forgotten he told you not to worry about what you should eat, where you should sleep, what you should wear? Listen, if you're not being generous now, if you're thinking, well, I need to be careful, I understand that. Don't give what you haven't got. Give out of what you have. Steward the money that you do have. Give wisely, give proportionately, but keep giving. Keep being generous. If you can afford Sky TV, you can afford to give big time. Please be careful that times when we're just pulling in a little aren't times when we start to excuse, in the end, a lack of faith in our heart. We just say, God, I just don't trust you. I fear losing money more than I fear you. Get this right. Think like this man. Let me just go to one last thing. It's about his faith. It's also about his fear, but it's also about his family. And this is the last piece here, family. I'm just struck going through this story, and it will come up again, how Noah is brought into the promises of God alongside his family. In fact, God seems to especially highlight it in places like verse 18 of chapter 6. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God's emphasizing family here. Right at the point where God is reconstructing creation around Noah. And it is an interesting story. Some Old Testament scholars have remarked on how Genesis 6 has some very similar features to Genesis 1. And also similar features to another place in the the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, all written by Moses. The book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 25 where the construction of the tabernacle is described. And in in the story of Genesis 1, which is the construction of the universe, and in Exodus 25, you get the clear instructions, you get God speaking, and you get people in obedience, or uh, creation in obedience, rallying around the words of God to bring out form and fullness according to the commands and the wisdom of God. And there are parallels that that these Old Testament scholars want to draw out. So look, you see how this works together. So what you see in Genesis 6 that we've been looking at is really God saying, this ark is nothing less than a new Eden, a new Garden of Eden. It's a tabernacle. It's a place of my dwelling. It's the place I want to be with people. It's interesting to me that God says to Noah, come to the ark. He doesn't say go to the ark. He doesn't say, Noah, build the ark, then go inside. <laughs> I'm busy. You, you go. You know, I'm God. You, you go and do stuff. I'm God. I'm busy in, in some celestial realm. No, he says, come. Come in the ark. This is where I am. I'm going, I'm going in the ark. You coming, Noah? I'm going to be in here. 
with you, with your family. Because why? Because we're rebuilding. We're restoring. We're renewing. My plans for planet Earth, my plans for the future are full of life and color and joy and sweetness. And I want you to come with me, Noah. This is where I'm going. Come with me. You and your family, your sons, your son's wives, your wife, your family, come with me. Let's start again. Let's start a new humanity, God is saying. And he builds it around family. That in itself is, is fascinating to me. God wants to start things. He starts with a family, just like he did in the first place, chapter 1. Because God loves family. God intends family for human existence. One of the weird pieces of corona for me has been, it's, it's kind of given me a chance again with my family. And it's, it's been challenging. I've not got it right. I've got it wrong nearly every day. But I've, I've been given an opportunity to get time. Now listen, if you're not part of a family, if you're living alone or if you're estranged from your family, I want you to understand that the opportunity is there, is there for you nevertheless for God to do extraordinary things in your life through this time and to connect you with his spiritual family in ways that are just as important. But, but putting that aside, let me still say to parents especially, to dads and to mums, listen, what God could be doing in this time of isolation, you're, you're going home, well, you're not going home, you're stuck at home. What's God doing? Well, he's got you in his ark. He's got you with you and the children. He's got you in a place of new creation. I came across a quotation on Twitter a few years ago that really hit me. Somebody saying, godly conversations around the dinner table with your children can topple godless empires. Godly conversations around the dinner table with your children can topple godless empires. God, God knows that the family is potent. This little family in a boat is the beginning of a new world. What you're doing as you raise your sons and daughters, as you teach them, as you pray with them, as you love them, as you encourage them, as you rebuke and correct them, as you discipline them, as you apologize to them, as you uh, build relationship with them, as you laugh with them and you cry with them and you, you set them on a path for life and you help them to consider their future and you help them to get up again when they've been hurt or they've been wounded or disappointed. As you come alongside and build family, what you're doing is potentially extraordinary in terms of potential. And we need to catch up with God's perspective, God's agenda, God's aspirations for family life that, that flow through the pages of this book again and again. And we need to understand that when it comes to authority and obedience to God, the atmosphere is family. It's no accident that God builds around family because the whole of the universe, right? The whole of everything, the whole of reality is built around a father and a son. Remember that as you look at this man, Noah. He's found a way, unlike all of humanity, to enjoy obedience to God, to find it restful, to find it a source of contentment. He's at home. He's happy to obey. He's, 
He's obeying everything. All that God commanded him, Noah did this. And he's not put upon, he's not a robot, he's not a slave. He's a happy son. Just like that perfect son that came into the world from heaven, that one obedient man, the only truly obedient one from start to finish, who learned obedience through suffering. The one who from childhood came under the, the hand of God, his father, and was able to say, I love what John's gospel says. This is how John has it in, a, in his uh, in Jesus, in Jesus' words to his disciples in John chapter 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now that's potentially a weird verse because, well, does Jesus have to abide in the Father's love by keeping up his commandments? Is, is Jesus scared that the Father's going to reject him? Is Jesus on a scorecard? Is Jesus trying to tick boxes? Is just Jesus just in terror of the Father throwing him out of the Trinity? Obviously not. It's ridiculous. Jesus isn't saying, if, if I play my card, if I, if I keep my nose clean, if I obey well, then the Father, well, he might love me. No, he, he lives in the Father's love. He abides in the Father's love. What he's saying is the way that he abides in the Father's love is in obeying him. He loves to obey. He loves to because he loves the Father. It's out of genuine love. If you're frightened of becoming a Christian, if you're frightened of putting your trust in God, if you're frightened of obeying this book, it's only because you haven't understood how lovely God is. Simple as that. You haven't understood how good he is. If you don't know he's good, of course you won't obey him. Not happily. And you're supposed to obey him happily, with a glad heart. So how's that going to happen? You're going to have to be like Jesus. You're going to have to abide in the love of the Father. You're going to have to be like Noah. You're going to have to know that you've found favor in his eyes. So that though you fear him, you love him still too. You do both. You rejoice with trembling. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is mighty and he makes us tremble. But his love and kindness are so gentle and so tender as to bless and enrich and satisfy our hearts like nothing else can. And you need to know him yourself. You need to know this God who loves you that much. And the reality, friends, is just like Noah's family, we get to be in on this anyway. My record of being obedient is quite patchy at best. I'm not like Noah. I haven't got that, that record. He obeyed God in all these things, all the things God commanded. Not so sure in my case, but I tell you what, I know I'm safe because my Jesus, like Noah, he's taken me with him. Noah was obedient and his whole family was saved. Jesus was obedient. And as it says in Romans 5, through the obedience of one man, many are made righteous. Jesus, he is the perfect obeyer of the Father. Jesus delighted to do the will of the Father. Jesus loved obeying his Father in every way. 
and the father was delighted with his obedience. Jesus did it perfectly and Jesus includes me. Jesus includes you if you turn to him. Maybe you'll do it today. Maybe today is the day that you become a Christian. Why don't you? Why don't you? Give me one reason why not. Why don't you today? He is that good. You can trust him. He, he gave his life up for you. Noah, he survived the flood. Jesus didn't. Jesus, he saves his family by drowning, if you like, by dying on the cross. Jesus, he's that good. You can trust him. You can turn to him and say, I don't know what this is going to mean. I might lose out. I, might, I could change everything. My life is going to get completely changed. But I trust you, Jesus, because you must be good, because you died on the cross for me. And he is that good. Why don't you turn to him today? Put your trust in him. We're going to explain more in this service about how you can do that and how we can help you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he loves us that much. Help us to learn to trust him. And help us, I pray, to learn obedience of the kind that Noah shows in this story, even for our family's sake, even to build households that restore a world that needs restoring. In Jesus' name, amen.